Once both of us spoke a single tongue of brotherly love we sweetly sung but love meant one thing to you i see and something quite different to me but now i'm aware that i was blind and now i can see into your mind and so i say no Dear friends, I was devastated with the news of the death of Glenda Jackson yesterday morning at the age of 87. She is, was, and will always be one of my very favorite actors. It was my enormous joy and privilege to see her on stage as Mother Courage at the Citizens Theater in Glasgow in 1989. It was shortly before she left acting to become a member of parliament. In that position, she was a staunch advocate for the left, but also on a personal level, she assisted friends of mine, constituents of hers, who were experiencing serious immigration issues at the time. Sadly, I was not able to see either of her late career assumptions on stage, either in Three Tall Women or as King Lear, but I am told that these were also extraordinary performances. I will always treasure the memory of having seen her as Mother Courage. She was by no means a singer, but even in her very first film, Marat Saad, she has, as you just heard, a few memorable sung moments. She was a force of nature. She was the embodiment for me of everything an actor should be. In 1977, she made a film called Stevie, which depicts the life of the eccentric British poet Stevie Smith. And at that time, she also made a recording of Smith's poems. And as a send-off to this great, great actor, I offer her reading of Stevie Smith's poem, Come Death. Come Death. I feel ill. What can the matter be? I'd ask God to have pity on me, but I turn to the one I know and say, Come, death, and carry me away. Ah, me, sweet death, you are the only God who comes as a servant when he is called, you know. Listen then to this sound I make, it is sharp. Come, death, do not be slow. Welcome to Counter Melody, the podcast on great singers and great singing. Each week, you will encounter me, Daniel Guntlach, as your host, guiding you along a magical route that will bring us closer to the voices of those singers that most enchant and transform us, no matter what else is going on in the world. Thank you for joining me on that path.
And now, this week's episode. Today's subjects, the composer Benjamin Britten and the tenor Peter Pierce, are, like Glenda Jackson, British. But British people of very different stripe, I think, than Glenda Jackson. When I first encountered these two men on records, heard them perform together, saw their photographs, I recognized kindred spirits, fellow travelers, if you will. And herein lies the great irony that in spite of the fact that throughout Britain's life, the nearly 40-year relationship between these two men was completely covert, it was, to those who could recognize it, also completely explicit. Benjamin Britten is acknowledged to this day as the dean of British composers, and I think Peter Pierce is of virtually equal importance, not just as Britten's muse and interpreter, but also as an artist of the highest rank in his own regard, and as part of a performing duo that lavished their gifts not just on Britain's music, but on a wide range of other composers as well. There's much to tell. It's a complicated story. Not all of it is, how shall I say this, palatable or attractive to audiences of today, but I want to focus on the love that these two men shared for nearly 40 years and the music that was the fruit of that love.
That was the third of seven sonnets of Michelangelo that Benjamin Britten composed in 1940 as an open expression of his love for Peter Pierce. The two had met a few years prior when cleaning out the apartment of a mutual friend who had been killed in an airplane crash. Within a few weeks, Britten had already written his first piece of music for Pierce to sing. At least as important as Britain's songs are the operas that he wrote with Piers's voice and persona in mind. At the time that they met, Britain had already experienced major success as a composer, but Piers was at the very beginning of his singing career and was not at all sure the direction in which he might go professionally. It's been suggested that it was entirely through Britain's influence that Piers became the great singer that he did, whereas Britain himself would have been a great composer even without Peter Piers. This may be true, but Britain's music is so suffused with that unique timbre and artistry that Piers possessed that it's hard to imagine how he would have developed if Piers had not been that inspiration to him. Of those Piers-inspired operatic impersonations that I mentioned, none is more important than the title role in Britain's first operatic masterpiece, Peter Grimes. Britain had been composing from a very early age, and in fact, at the age of 14, he began his serious compositional study with the eminent English composer Frank Bridge, whose music we will hear at the very end of the episode. It's hard to describe now just how seismic an event the premiere of Peter Grimes was. It marked the reopening of Sadler's Wells, today known as ENO, English National Opera, at the end of the war, less than six months after the German occupation of London ended. It's based on a poem called The Burrow by the late 18th century poet George Crabb, who knew well the Suffolk region where Britain grew up and where he resided and remained attached to until the end of his life. In Crabbe's original work, the character Peter Grimes is a highly unsavory one, a murderer and a miscreant, who fully deserves the wrath of the local populace. But Britain's portrayal of the title character, the fisherman Peter Grimes, reshaped 
by his friend the librettist Montague Slater becomes an outsider, a misunderstood dreamer, a victim of circumstance, and quite possibly, though it is never explicitly stated, a homosexual. His own violence stems from his frustration in coexisting in that world. In the penultimate scene of the opera, Peter Grimes, having once again been responsible for the death of one of his young apprentices, has gone mad. A furious crowd is looking for him, seeking to bring him to trial. And Grimes appears alone on stage with the voices of the enraged crowd in the distance and sings an unforgettable mad scene. This is a 1948 studio recording that was made at the time of the work's premiere at Covent Garden. This recording, though unreleased at the time, shows the voice of Peter Pierce in its youthful prime and also demonstrates his incendiary qualities as a vocal actor. Steady, they were nearly home. The first one died, just died. The other slipped and died. Then the third will. Accidental circumstances. Water will drink his song. My sorrows dry, and the tide will turn. Peter Grimes, she was here. I am. Hurry, 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 hurry. Now his gossip puts on trial. Bring the branding and a knife for what? And now he's done for life. Come on, lend me. And young Joe has gone fishing, and you'll know who's gone fishing when you land the next show. Helen, Helen, give me your hand, your hand. Take away your hand, the argument's finished, friendship lost, gossip is shouting, everything said. To hell with all your mercy. To hell with your revenge. And God have mercy upon you. You hear them all shouting my name? Do you hear them? Do you hear them? Oh, David John, shall I
Peter Grimes, Peter Grimes, Peter Grimes, Grimes, Peter Grimes. Benjamin Britten was also a committed pacifist for his entire life. It is said that this opposition to war and violence stemmed from his mistreatment at the public school he attended as a young boy. His hatred of war finds its most profound expression in his 1962 War Requiem, which was composed for the reopening of Coventry Cathedral in the same year. The work combines the verse of Wilfred Owen a poet who perished in World War I alongside the Latin texts of the Requiem. The work is scored for enormous forces, full orchestra, instrumental ensemble, three soloists, soprano, tenor, and baritone, and two choruses. One of the high points of the work comes in the Lacrimosa movement, which combines the solo soprano and choruses intonation of the Lacrimosa text with the Wilfred Owen poem, Move Him Into the Sun. This recording is from the world premiere performance on the 30th of May, 1962. Britain himself conducted the chamber ensemble, the Melos ensemble, that accompanied the tenor and baritone soloists. Meredith Davies conducted the full orchestral and choral forces that performed the requiem portions of the piece. Just a word about the soprano soloist here. It is the great Irish soprano Heather Harper who learned the role at very short notice when Soviet authorities declined to let Britain's choice of soprano, Galina Vishnevskaya, perform such a work alongside colleagues from both Germany and England. Harper triumphed on this occasion, and thus began a long association with the work of Benjamin Britten, which included her definitive portrayal of Ellen Orford in Peter Grimes. She's also been featured on her own countermelody episode, so for those who want to hear more of her, you know where to go. Move him, move him into the
think how it wakes the seeds. Oh, once the clays of the cold, cold star, a limb's glimpse of dear a sight honored still Now going back nearly 30 years, let's listen to Peter Pierce's first commercial recording. At the time that Pierce and Britain met, Pierce was a member of the BBC Singers, and it is with this group that he has heard in this 1936 recording of Peter Warlock's Corpus Christi Carol singing the solo tenor lines. Already at this very early date, his distinctive timbre and clarity of enunciation are already on display. by contrast, much more a man of the world, and much more sexually experienced. During that same time period, Britton was working for the film division of the BBC, for whom he composed music for documentary films that are still considered groundbreaking. He was often working in tandem with the young poet W.H. Auden, who began to offer to Britain the tantalizing prospect of the physical relations that gay men might share with each other. Britain was rather a prude 
in most matters sexual, and he had evidently already resisted the attentions of both Auden and fellow composer Lennox Barclay at the time that he met Pierce. Their relationship developed slowly. They had begun living together in London, and in fact, in 1939, sensing the war clouds on the horizon and following the example of both Auden and their mutual friend Christopher Isherwood, they had also fled together, first to Canada and then to the United States, where they settled in Brooklyn. Only then did their relationship take on a sexual component. It was through Auden that they found their home in Brooklyn as co-residents in a communal living arrangement that became known as February House, which housed an astonishing enclave of what we would now recognize as queer artists, which included, at various times, the writer Carson McCullers, the three gay children of novelist Thomas Mann, Erica, Klaus, and Golo, the Canadian composer Colin McPhee, the writer and composer Paul Bowles, and his wife Jane, today both recognized as queer icons, and the author Richard Wright. Fascinatingly, their only non-queer roommate was Gypsy Rose Lee, who in fact wrote her novel The G-String Murders while she was living at February House which received its name, by the way, from the memoirist and writer of erotica Anais Nin, who observed that the birthday of many of these residents was in February. It was here that Britain's prudishness became rather evident, for both he and Piers were uncomfortable with the chaotic lifestyle of the residents of this house. But many of the people with whom Britain and Piers came in contact during this time exhibited enormous and sometimes surprising influences on their life and work. In fact, Britain's first recording was made in the year 1941 for Scribner Records, in which he and Colin McPhee, a devotee of traditional Balinese music, played two piano transcriptions of this music transcribed by McPhee himself. Another composer friend who was also a surprising influence on Britain was Aaron Copland, a fellow traveler, shall we say, 
whose early Americana ballets from this period strongly influenced Britain in his attraction to the folk music of his own country. A few years later, Britain and Piers both recorded and performed Aaron Copland's Old American Songs. We listen to these recordings now and smile at how twee and British they sound. But one of the more successful of these recordings is of the boatman's dance. Or rather, the boatman's dance, as Peter pronounces it, which was Copland's arrangement of a song by Daniel Decatur Emmett, also the composer of Dixie. The boatman is a thrifty man that none can do as a boatman can. I never see a pretty girl in my life but that she was a boatman's wife. Who danced the boatman dance? Who danced the boatman dance? Who danced all night till cold daylight? And who woke with the girls in the morning? Oh! The influence of W.H. Auden on Benjamin Britten was, no doubt, the most profound of any of these associations. Having begun, as we saw when they both worked for the film unit of the BBC, it was because of Auden that Pierce and Britten spent those years at November House. Auden also provided the libretto for Britten's first opera, Paul Bunyan, He helped in the collection of texts for Britain's first big orchestral song cycle, Our Hunting Fathers, also composing some of those texts himself, and he provided the texts for Britain's song cycle with piano on this island, which was composed in 1937, thus after Pierce and Britain had met, but before they had emigrated to the United States. This is a performance of the fourth and most memorable of the songs from the On This Island cycle, Nocturne. It's a performance by Piers and Britain themselves many years later at the Aldborough Festival in June 1969. Oh, 
I had mentioned Aldborough a few minutes ago in relation to Britain's first operatic masterpiece, Peter Grimes. While Britain and Pierce were living in Brooklyn, Britain came across a transcript of a tribute that the writer E.M. Forster had written about the poet George Crabbe. And not only did this provide Britain with the inspiration for the composition of Peter Grimes, it also reinforced his homesickness to such a degree that he and Pierce undertook the arduous ocean voyage back to England in April 1942. This was a risky move on the part of these two men, for they were seen by much of the press and British culture as deserters, and they could have faced imprisonment. The British Embassy in Washington had advised Britain and Pierce against returning, stating that they could become artistic ambassadors for the UK by remaining in the United States. But upon their return, they both applied for recognition as conscientious objectors, applications which were finally accepted, after which they began performing more in public, including the premiere of the Michelangelo cycle in 1942, a subsequent recording of which we heard at the very beginning of the episode. In 1943, Piers joined the Sadler's Wells Opera Company, and he sang a surprising amount of standard operatic repertoire, material for which he is most definitely not known today. However, at Aldborough in 1963, 
At a concert celebrating Britain's 50th birthday, they performed a number of operatic arias, including Lenski's aria from Tchaikovsky's Eugene Onegin, sung in Russian. Here's a portion of that recording. An important and lasting contribution to the artistic life of their country and, indeed, of the world was the establishment of the Aldborough Festival in 1948. Britain had already founded the English Opera Group, which presented the premieres of many of his operatic creations. The third figure associated with the establishment of the Aldborough Festival was the librettist and director Eric Crozier, who first met the couple when he directed Peter Pears in the Sadler's Wells production of The Bartered Bride. He went on to direct the first production of Peter Grimes, to found the English opera group with the two men, and, as I just said, also to be one of the founders of the Aldborough Festival. 
I'd like to take a little time now to focus on Britton and Piers's performances in recital of the music of composers other than Britton, just as Piers had developed into a singer of utmost expressiveness and refinement. So Britton proved himself in his many concerts and recordings with Peter Pierce to be one of the supreme accompanists of the age, in spite of the fact that he was not an overly enthusiastic or outgoing performer. It's here that we see and hear in action the love that Benjamin Britton and Peter Pierce had for each other, the respect for each other as artists the collaboration that produces so many fascinating and interesting spins on repertoire that perhaps we thought we already knew. A cycle they frequently performed together was Robert Schumann's Dichterliebe. We've been hearing a lot of Dichterliebe on the podcast recently. I'd like to play one of the songs that I have not yet featured, I don't think, this is the fourth song, Wenn ich in deine Augen sehe. When I look into your eyes, all of my suffering goes away. But when you say to me, I love you, then I must weep bitterly. The recording we're going to hear is one that was recorded for the BBC in March of Schubert was another leader composer that the duo performed, who was also one of Britain's most beloved composers. And he and Piers give such fascinating and vivid performances of the music of Schubert. The two big cycles, of course, but also individual leader. Sometimes their programming choices were 
outside of the normal scope of that handful of Schubert songs that one always hears in recital. Here's one that is not infrequently performed, but that one doesn't encounter every single day. That's Das Lied im Grünen, the song in green, in other words, of the great outdoors. This is also a BBC recording made in January 1964. <laughs> that Pierce and Britton did not explore in great depth was that of the Melodie. They were good friends with Francis Poulenc, but I'm not sure they ever performed his music, at least not any of his songs. I know that Poulenc and Britton performed Poulenc's two piano concerto together on occasion, for example. And in fact, there's only one extant recording that I know of, of the duo performing French art song. And that is a performance from the Aldborough Festival in 1958 of Gabriel Fauré's cycle La Bonne Chanson, set to texts by Paul Verlaine. We're going to hear the second song of the cycle, Puisque l'aube grandit. Puisque l'aube grandit, puisque voici Bonheur veut bien être le mien. 
had very clear loves and hates among other composers. He loved Mozart. He loved Schubert. He loved Bach. He wasn't so fond of Wagner. And he didn't think much at all of either von Williams or Brahms. We're going to hear right now recordings by Pierce and Britton of both von Williams and Brahms. In 1948, he and Piers recorded with the Zorian String Quartet, whose members were players in the English Opera Group Orchestra, von Williams's chamber song cycle On Wenlock Edge, set to texts by A.E. Hausman. This is the third song, Is My Team Plowing? It's a conversation between two young men, one of whom is now dead and is inquiring how things are on earth now that he is no longer there. The voice that Peter Pierce conjures up for this spirit is positively haunting, and the most effective characterization, I would say, that I have ever heard. And Britton is right there with him, proving that even if it was a composer that he didn't particularly like, he could still give very effective performances of that composer's music. Is my team plowing that I want used to drive and hear the harness jingle when I was
mentioned Brahms, and there are very, very few examples of Britain performing the music of Brahms. In fact, there are some pretty damning statements from Britain about the music of Brahms, which really distresses me because Brahms is one of my favorites. And many of the things that Britain claims to dislike the most about Brahms's output are things that I particularly love. Anyway, at the Aldborough Festival in June 1968, Britain and Piers did perform the Liebeslieder Walzer of Brahms. And what a lineup this was. For one thing, the piece is scored for two pianos, and the second piano was played by Claudio Arrao. And the three other soloists in this piece were Heather Harper, Janet Baker, and Thomas Hemsley. There's one solo movement for the tenor, and that is the penultimate song, Nicht wandle mein Licht. It's set to a text of Georg Friedrich Daumer, and here it is, live from Aldborough, June 14th, a major component of the recital repertoire of Pierce and Pritten was performance of songs and cycles 
that Britain had written expressly for Peter Piers. And one of the greatest of those cycles, in my opinion, is the cycle set to poems by Thomas Hardy called Winter Words, which was composed and premiered in 1953. One must note here that Britain was a great lover of the written word and chose with great care all the texts he set in both song cycles and for his operatic subject matter. These were, I believe, Britain's only settings of Thomas Hardy, but they are enormously effective and are as evocative of Hardy's semi-fictionalized Wessex region as are Britain's evocations of Sussex. This song at the railway station Upway makes reference to Britain's pacifism and opposition to incarceration. This is a performance that was given in Leningrad in March 1963. There is not much that I can do quite my own spoke up a pitying child a little boy with a violin at the station before the train came in but I can play my fiddle to you Swampies and good in tone. The man in the handcuffs smiled. The constable looked and he smiled too as the fiddle began to twang. And the man in the handcuffs suddenly sang with grimful glee. This life so free, this life so free. And the constable smiled and said no word, as if unconscious of what he And so they went on till the train came in. The convict and boy with the violin. I mentioned a while back about how Copeland's pieces celebrating American folk culture reawakened in Britain his love for the native folk song of his own country. And from the 1940s through to near the end of his life, he arranged a wide number of folk songs, both French and British, to be performed as the closing set on his recitals with peers. 
Sometimes these songs were not strictly folk songs. This next song is an example of that. It's actually an arrangement of a song by Charles Dibdin, which Pierce himself introduces in this live 1964 telecast. Though I'm playing only two of the three verses, you still hear Pierce's peerless artistry. I always am able to form a very clear picture of this by the way that an artist, a singer, takes a strophic song and finds so much variety within the potential sameness of each verse. Tom Bowling was written by Charles Dibdin in the late 18th century as a song in memory of his brother Tom, who was lost at sea. Love. 
I have only made passing reference thus far to Benjamin Britten's orchestral song cycles. Our Hunting Fathers was the first major one, but there is also, from the early 1940s, the Serenade for Tenor, Horn, and Strings, which was written for the hornist Dennis Brain and the voice of Peter Beers, and which is an early masterpiece of Benjamin Britten's. There are several fantastic recordings, both with and without Dennis Brain, of Peter Pierce singing this cycle. But because it's so well known, I'd rather focus instead on a later work that Britain composed for Pierce, The Nocturne, which was premiered in October 1958. Britain was often attracted to subject matter dealing with the night, just as he was with evocations of water and the ocean. The cycle uses eight different texts by different writers, from Shelley to Tennyson to Coleridge to Wordsworth to Keats to his first setting of Wilfred Owen to, finally, Shakespeare's Sonnet 43. The work is set for tenor and seven obligato instruments as well as strings. And in the final movement, this Shakespeare sonnet, we only hear the strings. The final lines of the sonnet are, All days are nights to see till I see thee, and nights bright days when dreams do show thee me. This performance is from a 1964 telecast in which Britain leads the English Chamber Orchestra. When most I Oh, 
The society in which Peter Pierce and Benjamin Britten lived, Great Britain, in the 1940s through the mid-1970s, was, for the most part, outwardly hostile toward gay men. The two men often feared that they were being targeted for oppression, especially when certain scandals broke in British society that involved gay spies, and other kinds of crackdowns. In fact, the two of them actually considered in the mid-1950s having peers enter into a sham marriage with a woman to protect their reputations. But through all of this, in his choices of subject matter, Benjamin Britten went back time and time again to gay subject matter, work by gay writers, gay poets, gay composers. Let's just consider some of the work that we've already heard today. Those early Michelangelo sonnets from 1940 are explicitly gay poems. The hero Peter Grimes is turned into a gay outcast of society. The association and influence of Auden, as we have seen, is palpable. Wilfred Owen, the World War I poet, was also gay. So it's not surprising that also in his choices of operatic subject matter, Britain chose most frequently to pursue gay-themed subjects. Consider, for example, the opera Billy Budd, based on a novella by Herman Melville, whose libretto was shaped by Eric Crozier, as well as E.M. Forster, another very closeted gay figure. The subject matter, of course, is basically a love triangle on a ship, but a love that, to paraphrase Oscar Wilde, dare not speak its name. This is not the first time, either, that Britain addresses the topic of the corruption of innocence, for the title character, Billy Budd, represents pure innocence, pure goodness, and yet Captain Veer, the part that Peter Pierce created, signs the death warrant for Billy Budd and spends the remainder of his life lamenting the fact that he didn't save him. These are the final moments of the world premiere performance of Billy Budd as it was heard at Covent Garden on the 1st of December, 1951. Oh, I could have saved him. I could have saved him. He knew it. He and his shipmates knew it. The earthly
after setting the Shakespeare sonnet 43 as the final song of the Nocturne, Britain once again turned to Shakespeare for his 1960 opera, A Midsummer Night's Dream. This was the first contemporary opera for which a major role was written for a countertenor, and it was one of the great joys of my professional life as a singer that I was able to perform the role of Oberon in the UK back, when was that, 1993, I think. Oh my goodness, such a long time ago now. It is an absolute masterpiece, in my opinion, the way that Britain creates different sound worlds for the world of the fairies, as opposed to the world of the rustics, and as opposed to the world of the lovers, all three groups of which interact to some degree or another over the course of the opera. After all of the conflicts and tensions have been resolved, the piece ends with a performance by the rustics at the royal wedding of Theseus and Hippolyta, their own version of the tragedy of Pyramus and Thisbe. And in this scene, the role of flute, the bellows mender, was taken by Peter Pears. This scene is interesting for a number of reasons. First of all, it parodies bel canto opera, the year after Joan Sutherland had made her spectacular Covent Garden appearance in the title role of Lucia di Lammermoor. So we hear the character flute singing with a flute obbligato, an aria that sounds an awful lot like a parody of bel canto and of Joan Sutherland singing Lucia. And not only that, but here is Peter Pierce as flute taking on the female role of Thisbe, the first time that he would portray a quote-unquote female part in one of Britain's operas. Later, when the work was recorded for London Decca, Pierce took the role of the lover Lysander, but I think he's heard to best advantage singing the role of Thisbe, as portrayed by flute. This recording comes from the world premiere at Aldborough of the opera, as it was heard on the 11th of June, 1960, just 63 years ago this very week. Asleep, my love, what did my love? <laughs> oh, speak, speak, quite dumb. Speak, speak, quite dumb. Thank <laughs> you. 
I assure you, the wall is down at part of their fathers. My first encounter with the music of Benjamin Britten and the singing of Peter Pierce was in a recording of the first of his church parables, Curl You River. Curl You River. Britten had already been introduced to the music of Bali by his old friend, the composer Colin McPhee. And when Britten and Pierce traveled to Japan, I think it was in 1956, at any rate, in the late 50s, they attended a performance of the no drama Sumidagawa, which left a profound impression upon Britain. The piece depicts the search of a woman driven mad by grief for her son who has been abducted from her and is later discovered to have been murdered. When she visits his tomb, his spirit appears to her and she is freed of her madness. Britain was inspired to take this theme and to place it in a Suffolk setting to score the work for four soloists, a chorus of eight, and a small instrumental ensemble. The central role of the madwoman was written for Peter Pierce, and it is this character who receives the most striking musical treatment. This piece represents to me one of Britain's towering masterpieces. He creates an entirely new sound world in a ritualized setting that combines no drama with Christianity, though I don't believe that Britain really considered himself to be a Christian. As in Midsummer Night's Dream, the flute is once again heard as the obligato instrument that accompanies the tenor. Here, the madwoman, who alternates between clarity and madness as she describes how her son was abducted from her. It was in my encounter of this record, I was probably 12 years old, that I came face to face with photographs of Britain and Piers together, and something told my little gay self that these two men were indeed a couple. One of those things that queer kids intuit, that seeing representations of other queer people can provide an inspiration, a sense of hope, an inkling that there may be a bigger world out there than one has yet experienced. Mountain there I dwelt, 
Now, there is a topic that I haven't really addressed yet, but it is, to my mind, the thorniest issue regarding Benjamin Britten, and that was his attraction to young boys. I'm not really getting into it in this episode. It's a complicated issue that is kind of beyond the scope of this episode and this podcast but which I can't simply sweep under the rug. It's most likely that Britain was sexually abused when he was away at public school, but throughout his life, he experienced strong attraction to young boys between the ages of 13 and 15. Films have been made, studies have been written about this issue. The most important of these a scholarly book called Britain's Children was published nearly 20 years ago, and since then, public opinion has really changed on these issues. So while the book finds that Britain, in his relationships with these young boys, did not cross over into the realm of impropriety, I think that from our perspective of today, he did indeed cross that boundary. And as we are often told that we cannot conflate homosexuality with pedophilia, I think in Britain's case, it's difficult to draw a clear line between these two things. I bring this up now because when you consider especially the subject matter of so many of Britain's operas, Peter Grimes, Turn of the Screw, Billy Budd, Midsummer Night's Dream, Curl You River, so many of them involve 
to some degree or other, the presence of young boys, the idea of the corruption by older men of these young, innocent boys, and, indeed, in Britain's last opera, Death in Venice, these issues are absolutely positively foregrounded, and it is the protagonist Aschenbach's attraction to the young Polish boy Tadziu that sets into motion the tragic denouement of the story. It is not insignificant that at the time this work was written, homosexuality was no longer a criminal offense in Great Britain. The work, of course, is based on the novella Death in Venice by Thomas Mann, the father of three of Britain's former roommates at November House. By the time this work was being written, Britain's heart condition, which was to be the cause of his premature death, had already been responsible for a serious decline in the composer's health. He, therefore, did not conduct the premiere of the work, which role was assumed by his amanuensis Stuart Bedford. Peter Pierce, however, did sing the role of Aschenbach in the work's world premiere, as well as in early productions of the opera, including at the Met, shortly before Britain died. This is the end of the first act in the world premiere performance of the opera, in which Aschenbach finally has to face the fact that he can no longer intellectualize this attraction to the beautiful, godlike Tadzio. And the act concludes with those three words, I love you. Aschenbach's cathartic, even horrified realization, unheard by the boy, but spoken aloud to the world nonetheless. <laughs>
Benjamin Britten died of heart failure on the 4th of December 1976, less than two weeks after observing his 63rd birthday. Peter Pears survived him by 10 years, dying on the 3rd of April 1986 at the age of 75. He did much to continue to promote both the Aldborough Festival and Benjamin Britten's legacy after his partner's death. After Britain's death, Piers spoke more openly about their relationship, even giving interviews to The Advocate magazine. It's exceptional that a compositional legacy such as Britain's should be so closely allied with the voice and artistry of his life partner, Peter Piers. I'd like to mention that for my Patreon supporters, there will be a bonus episode this weekend featuring a rare recording of the final full recital that Peter Pierce and Benjamin Britten gave together in the summer of 1972 at Aldborough. That includes a complete performance of the Hardy Cycle Winter Words, as well as a group of settings of the music of Hugo Wolf and three arrangements by Benjamin Britten of English folk songs. For those who would like access to that bonus episode, please go to patreon.com slash countermelody, where you can make a monthly or a yearly contribution to support the production of the podcast. I'd like to close with three different songs, one by Gustav Holst, whose daughter Imogen was a close colleague of Pierce and Britain's and who was actively involved in the running of the Aldeborough Festival. That song is one of a cycle of 12 composed by her father Gustav to texts by the poet Humbert Wolfe. It's called Journey's End, and Pierce and Britain recorded it in the year 1965. It's a dialogue between a father and his son on the topic of death. What will they give me when journey's done? Your to be quiet in
And here is the song that I promised you by Britain's teacher, Frank Bridge, set to a text by William Butler Yeats, entitled When You Are Old. Piers and Britain recorded this in 1963. There's so much controversy about Piers and Britain that continues to this day. It's not only about the boys, and it's certainly no longer about the gay stuff. There are certainly some naysayers, both regarding Britain's compositions and Peter Piers's voice 
but it's also about the fact that Benjamin Britten was capable of being a not very nice person and canceling people for no apparent reason. This happened to so many of the singers and musicians with whom he collaborated. This is another, for me, really hard pill to swallow. We want our idols, the people that we have always looked up to, to be good people. And sometimes they just aren't. Or perhaps more accurately, they are in certain ways, and in other ways, not so much. But in the end, I always return to the music, and also to the love that he and Peter Pierce bore for each other. And there's one piece in particular that for me exemplifies both of those things. Another early love song that he wrote for Peter Pierce, the first canticle, My Beloved is Mine, set to a text by the English Renaissance poet Francis Quarles. The text is based on the Song of Solomon, which, as I've shown in a previous episode, is erotic poetry, whose inclusion in the Bible some people choose to justify by claiming that it is, in fact, about the profound connection between the human and his God. But it is most emphatically true that this work was primarily intended as a public expression of the private love that Peter Pierce and Benjamin Britten shared for many, many years. A love which is still felt today in the various legacies that these two artists created together. Oh, my best 
my dear friends, keep the song in your hearts. I'm Daniel Guntlach. <laughs>